Hi, I'm Abby. And I'm Ellie. And this is the, the Queers, Queers for Fears, Fears podcast. podcast. Hooray. <laughs> we are re-recording this one for you because we fucked it up. So by, by we, she's being generous. It's me. I mean, <laughs> the me. internet connection at your house <laughs> fucked it up, which is really... We're like paying out the ass for internet. I don't understand why that happened. But yeah. anyway. And it's the same provider as your last place. So I know. Who it's, knows? I Comcast don't sponsor us. We hate you guys. <laughs> so maybe we'll do it better this time. We but have hot takes about Comcast. We could probably do a whole episode about them. Yeah. Hopefully this will be a new and improved version of our previous recording, but maybe not. And you will never know. <laughs> and you'll never know because you'll never hear the old one. <laughs> <laughs> So today we're talking about tarot and astrology. Um, and this was a fun one to write because like so many of my friends and our friends are into this. It's like seeing a kind of a boom in millennials, which we're going to talk about in a second. So I'm going to start with tarot because I know less about it and I have fewer opinions on it. <laughs> um, That's fair. So tarot decks, if you're not familiar, are similar to a regular playing card deck, but with different suits. And they're usually wands, swords, cups, and coins, plus 22 major arcana. And those are the ones that you're going to recognize, like the lovers, death, the tower, the hanged man, the wheel of fortune, the devil, and judgment. Um, so they're trump cards from Triumphy or Triumph. Um, and they were added to the playing deck later. Tarot cards likely originated in northern Italy in the 14th or 15th century as a game similar to bridge called Taroki, played mostly by nobles. Pfft, lazy nobles, right? <laughs> Lying around, fucking sliding around, letting peasants do all the work. <laughs> what a time to be alive, unless you're the plague. Yeah. Yep. What a, in, I mean, I guess in another sense of the phrase, what a time to be alive. Kind of like right now is what a time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> I just rewatched that episode recently and I was like, how about we lock me in a freezer until robot wives are affordable and efficient? What episode? This is the Simpsons episode oh. where the old man um, uh, sticks himself in the freezer at the convenience store. And then he, they turn him into like a sideshow attraction. Oh. And then like the freezer breaks and it thaws and he comes out and he thinks it's the future because he sees a, a rack of moon pies and he goes, moon pie. Oh. What a time to be alive. So Yeah. I'm like the only person on this planet that doesn't watch the Simpsons. I, d I feel like my parents watched it when I was little and then they were like, Bart is using swear words. And then we couldn't watch it anymore. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Jack watches it. So yeah. And we have uh, a friend's Disney plus login. Shout out to people who share their Disney plus logins. <laughs> In this economy. In this economy. <laughs> um. So yeah, it was a time to be alive. And um, so the major arcana figures might have been inspired by carnival costumes because when you're not playing cards, you're just fucking playing dress up because you're a nobleman. So the one of the first decks was the Visconti Sforza deck, which was probably created by the Duke of Milan in about 1440. And across Still Europe- Still don't know what a Duke is. I know. My, my partner was like, Oh, I listened to the episode. It's a Patreon episode that was released, the Carl Tanzler episode, where mm -hmm. we're like, what's a duke? And then we look up what a duke, and it was basically like, one that is a duke. It's yeah, one like that, the definition. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, like, thanks. And one, I was like, wow, thanks, Merriam-Webster. And he was like, if you'd like me to explain it to you sometime, I can. And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. And then I just didn't follow up with that. So we still don't know. Now, <laughs> we'll you fancy know bitch. Abby's boyfriend ever explains to us what a duke is. <laughs> now, fancy bitch is what duke <laughs> is there you go um so across europe tarot cards are still used as playing cards with rules varying by the region 
And by the late 18th century, they had started to take on like mystical meanings um, with different people down the years attributing like different mystical origins to them. So clergymen had been preaching against tarot decks for years before because it was because you weren't supposed to gamble, but not because of magical reasons. Using cards for divination, which is called cartomancy, dates to the 1400s and really took off in the 17th, 1700s. But until the mid-20th century, regular old playing cards were the most common cartomancy deck in the non-English-speaking world. So Caleb Compton of Rempton Games says, quote, Throughout human history, nearly anything that had an element of repeatable randomness, from dice to butchered animals, was used for fortune-telling. Playing cards would have been quite natural for this purpose, as not only are they random, but the various numbers, suits, and face cards would make it easy to assign clear and symbolic meanings to each card. Mm-hmm. And I get that. We're going to go into that with astrology as well. Just, I don't know sort of meaning making with whatever you have to hand. That's like my grandma reading tea leaves. Yes. Do you want me to tell that story now? Yes. Save it. Go for it. So my grandma, this kind of pertains to this episode because my paternal grandma was a Pisces and um, in astrology, Pisces is the sign that is um, like the most sensitive and like intuitive and emotional emotional and like in involved in things like you know spooky the occult yeah basically and so for fun my grandma used to read people's uh tea leaves and so one day she like was out to lunch or something with um her friend and they were just like having fun and talking and like just for funsies my grandma like read her tea leaves and she looked at the tea leaves and she told um her friend to be careful crossing the street and um the friend upon crossing the street the friend was hit by a car so my grandma was a spooky bitch <laughs> um certified spooky bitch pedigree for abby yes <laughs> um so that's like my fortune telling fortune telling grandma that's that's fucking cool i know this is fucking spooky right um so one of the first people to link tarot cards to like a mystical origin was Pastor Antoine Cour de Gabelan, who in, right, in 1781 said that the tarot cards came from the ancient Egyptians and that tarot comes from the Egyptian for royal road of life and that the symbols contain the secret wisdom of Thoth, who is the, um, the ibis-headed god. Egyptian yeah. god, who is the god of writing magic, wisdom, and the moon, which what a wheelhouse. Is that the bird? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he looks like this. Oh, yeah. Okay, he's like the really famous Egyptian spooky bird head dude. Spooky bird head dude. <laughs> yeah. okay. um, traditional playing cards probably did come from Egypt originally, but, you know, especially in this particular period of European history and in sort of the early rise of mysticism, like, Egypt was sort of considered, like, the cradle of mm-hmm. knowledge and the cradle of also particularly right. spooky knowledge. Right. The occultist Jean-Baptiste Alliette also published a treatise on using tarot cards as divination tools, and he created the first tarot society and the first tarot deck specifically for cardamancy. And he claimed that tarot cards described the universe's origin and were first printed on gold leaves. Oh, right. Fancy. <laughs> I want to live in these guys' version of ancient Egypt where everybody knows what's going to happen and everything's fucking printed on gold. <laughs> so Eliphas Levi, the 19th century occultist, linked tarot with the Kabbalah and said that it's older than Moses and that the four suits represent the tetragrammaton, the four letter name of God. Um, and Hello, I have a dumb question. Yes. Did they have paper back when Moses was alive? Um... They probably, oh, that's a good question. I don't think they would have had 
paper, like from wood pulp, like we know. Well, they had papyrus. They probably would have had papyrus and they probably would have had animal hides would be my guess. Okay. I'm just like, what did they make these cards out of? Yeah. Okay. Gold leaves. What a time to be alive. (laughs) I don't know. We haven't figured out paper. It's it's gold. (laughs) Let's just use some of this shiny crap that it takes a zillion years to dig out of the ground. Um, I mean, they weren't digging it out of the ground. That's true. Their fucking slaves are panning for gold in the Nile. Is there even gold in Egypt? I don't know. Well, this is not an Egypt podcast. (laughs) If you want to learn more fun facts about Egypt. I'm sure there are great Egyptology podcasts. (laughs) Look elsewhere kindly. If they're listening to us right now, they're smacking their foreheads and going, shut up. (laughs) That's okay. One of my dear near and dear uh podcasts that I like to listen to the other day, they were talking they asked like when the Civil War was and I was screaming. Wait, like they were asking like what years the American Civil War took place? Yes, and they're American, so I was like screaming at them. Um, because my dad just sort of like took over my body for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, it was the 1860s. Oh God. Anyway. Um, so then in 1889, this French Spanish physician and esotericist hypnotist type dude, Gerard Ancos wrote the tarot of the Bohemians, which, which claimed that the Roma invented tarot because again, this was somehow linked to Egypt because at the time the Roma were believed to have originated in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, then there was this lady, Maria Anne Normand, who was a tarot reader to the stars of the late 18th and early 19th centuries in France. Um, and she actually made it both through Napoleon's rise and fall because Napoleon trusted her. But then, you know, after his downfall, people would go, Oh, like they would point to predictions that she had made that seemed to maybe predict that Napoleon was going to go down. And so she was not sort of like, you know, thrown out with the bathwater of the Napoleonic era, people were were like, oh, she's the real deal. So she managed to still be an important, like, fortune teller. Hmm. So then in the early 1900s, the Rosicrucians, the Theosophical Society, and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which are all, like, um... What what titles? They're, yeah. All these, like, (laughs) long-ass names. Yeah, they're all just major, like, mystical, esoteric organizations that popularized tarot in the U.S., so A.E. Waite of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and Pamela Coleman-Smith teamed up in 1909 to create the Rider Waite Tarot, which is still a well, commonly sold one today. Mm-hmm. And then fucking overgrown theater, Alistair Crowley wrote The Book of Thoth in 1944, which had more Egyptian like origin stories for like common fortune-telling stuff. So there are a few different interpretations of what the tarot deck like means what interpretation is the fool's journey that the major arcana tells the story of the fool as an every man as he makes his way toward enlightenment which is the world and the major arcana represent people that he meets or events that occur along the way makes sense and when you do a tarot reading like there are a lot of different sort of layouts for the cards so the most common ones are um an open reading or a question reading which is you can do as like a three card spread and it can the three cards can represent past, present, future, or your current situation and the obstacle and like what you need to overcome it. Yeah, and that's what we we got like the three card spread at the Yes. Spooky. There was a there's a Fleetwood, Fleetwood Mac, Mac pop up bar at the Rookery in West Town. I know many of you know me. And for those of you that don't know me, I love Fleetwood Mac Mac. Mm-hmm. And uh I almost said like Fleetwood snack. That was weird. Anyway, it's looking like a Fleetwood snack. (laughs) 
<laughs> but yeah, me when I dress up in like throwback seventies shit. So at this, um, that's me anytime I put my big hat on. Um, <laughs> I'm like, this is a song about a white witch. My head <laughs> is too big. Is that the big hat you want me to go to Mexican? Yes, it's so good. To, anyway, to go to Mexican, to go to Mexico to for my Mexican vacation. I like. It's fine. We're great. It's hot. Um, <laughs> it's hot. I have a large head, and Abby's hat did not fit me when I went to Mexico. And so. Um, oh, we went to this Fleetwood Mac bar called Rhiannon, of course, of course. And, um, since, you know, the whole like witchy theme of, uh, Rhiannon and the band and everything, they had a tarot card reader there. So I've never gotten my tarot cards read before. I had done like readings for other people, but I never like, there's kind of like an unwritten rule in tarot that you like, don't do your own readings really that often because it's weird. I don't know. It freaks me out during my own reading. Anyway, it's fine. <sighs> anyway, so we get our readings done and she's like, okay, like what question do you want to ask? And both of us are like, we have no idea. We've never done this before. She's like, well, most people do like love or career. And we're like, okay. So Ellie picked career and I forget what she said about you. I thought I picked love because there was, I had that that drama going on with that girl in New York. Oh, maybe. I'm looking know. on Rhiannon's website because I want to talk about their menu because it was they had like <laughs> so had like good. edible glitter and activated charcoal. There and were gold leaves. communion wafers. Speaking and, of gold leaves, there were gold leaves in the drink that you got. Uh, yeah, remember. But um, so I was doing love because if you remember our first episode of Bad Dates, um. <laughs> It was right after I had been jumped by that guy that I mentioned in the first episode that we ever did. Bitch ass. And we thought we saw him there. Oh my God. It was literally like his stupid hair, his stupid yeah, the back of his stupid yeah. hair. Yeah. And I was like, oh fuck, that's bad. It wasn't him, thank goodness. But um, the tarot reading lady, I said love and I flipped over a card and she just went, ooh, ooh girl. girl. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh no. no just- I was cancel it. I was like, yeah, just flip it back over like it never happened. But um, it was very like, oh, I found their menu. Interesting. They, uh, so they only do it periodically at the Rookery and last year they like closed it way earlier than usual, but they have like um, one called Gold Dust Woman, which is bourbon, honey, ginger liqueur, and a gold candy rim. And they have one that's um, Crystal Visions, which is champagne, edible glitter, and color changing rock sugar. Yeah, that was cool. I remember that one. Black Magic Woman is activated charcoal, gin, and lychee liquor. And what was the one with Mescal that we found out the hard way that Abby hates Mescal because mm-hmm. she's from space? I don't know. It's not on here. But Mescal is good. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, it's because I'm Aquarius. I'm weird. I don't know. That's my excuse. Oh, my God. Okay. So astrology, speaking of which... <laughs> Speaking of Abby being weird. <laughs> Obviously, humans have been looking at the stars for a long time. So the Nebra sky disk from Northern Europe, approximately 1600 BCE, shows the sun, waxing crescent moon, and stars, including the Pleiades. Uh, petroglyphs made by uh, Native Americans, including in White Mesa and Navajo Canyon, date to the 11th century. There was one that maybe showed like a, a comet or something, but it seems like maybe it didn't show the comet. I don't know. The jury is out. But petroglyphs are those like, cave drawings right yeah okay um babylonians tracked the positions of the planets and eclipses and stuff and the egyptians looked to sirius the dog star 
Um, obviously, that is the star I would look at if I were seeking guidance. <laughs> There's a dog in the sky. Yeah, fuck. Uh, which comes up in late July. Sirius is like, so I love looking at Orion, but it bums because I can identify it really easily. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I know what that is, but it also means that fall is coming. And I'm like, no, get back down below the horizon where you Okay, belong. speaking of being from space, she doesn't like fall, so. <laughs> it means summer's over and everything's fucking dying. That time I had my uh, housewarming party in like October and it was warm. So I was wearing like shorts and a crop top and Abby's wearing full like black jeans and a beanie and flannel. And we're like, <laughs> yeah. guess which season is everybody's favorite. <laughs> there are two types of women in this world. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, oh yeah. So the Egyptians would look to Sirius in late July, my good friend and ideological enemy <laughs> to tell them the Nile was going to flood. And then of course there's Stonehenge and it's modern, uh, that's what I'm looking for. Oh my god! And it's modern versions: Manhattan Henge and Chicago Henge. Mm-hmm. Um, in China, people would look at eclipses or sunspots as portents of good or bad times for the emperor. Sten Odenwald, the director of citizen science at the NASA Space Science Education Consortium, says, "Quote: There's some indication that cave art shows this idea that animals and things can be imbued with some kind of spirit form that then has an influence on you, and if you appease that spirit form, then you will have a successful hunt." It was taken over by the idea of a divination where you can actually look at things in nature and study them carefully, such as tea leaf reading. So again, this sort of thing that just, I don't know, looking to what you have to hand and imbuing it with meaning is kind of where we get a lot of these uh, traditions. Mm-hmm. The Venus tablet of Amisaduka from the first millennium BC tracks the motion of Venus, and it's one of the earliest pieces of cuneiform text that we now know as the Babylonian planetary omens. Um, the idea of constellations um, like popped up independently in several different cultures, but the ones that we really know, uh, the constellation tradition that we know did come from the Egyptians who passed it on to the Greeks when Alexander the Great conquered Egypt. Um, and also borrows from the Babylonians who had a 12 sign zodiac system by 1500 BCE. Ptolemy popularized the 12 sign astrology that we know today because zodiac comes from Greek for sculpted animal figure. And, uh, it was originally the year started in spring when the sun entered Aries. Which is also oh, that's why it starts with Aries. Yeah, exactly. When you and are not like scrolling Capricorn or yeah. whatever. Yeah, okay. Astronomy. I've always wondered that. I yeah, thought. it's sort of part of that whole same tradition of like Easter incorporating a lot of like pre-Christian elements for start of the year stuff, and mm-hmm. Lunar New Years are a little bit closer to this like spring start than our January first start. Mm-hmm. So astronomy and astrology started to deviate in the Western world around the time of the Enlightenment when it was like, okay, well, let's stop looking at the animals in the sky and deciding what they're, you know, what influence they have in our lives. And let's start like tracking the motion of the planets and seeing what it means for the actual, for actual outer space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Horoscope columns really became popular in the early 20th century. There was this uh, horoscope guy, R.H. Naylor, and he was the assistant to William Warner, who read the palms of Mark Twain, Winston Churchill, and Grover Cleveland. Uh, but William Warner was unavailable to do the natal chart for Princess Margaret, so his assistant R.H. Naylor did it. Can you imagine being like, hello, the princess would like you to do her natal chart, and you being like, I'm simply too busy. I am full fucking up, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> so on August 24th, 1930, three days after Princess Margaret was born, uh, and Princess Margaret, I suppose if you don't know a lot about the royal family and you have more important things in your brain, um, she was Queen Elizabeth II's older sister. So Naylor's, oh. Naylor's published report predicted that her life oh. would be, quote-unquote, eventful. Wow, <laughs> really? A princess life? A princess had an eventful life. Wait, was she an older sister or younger sister? She was older, I oh, think. Yeah, she was Queen Elizabeth II's sister. Um, so yeah, obviously she's a princess. 
um, yeah, her life is going to be eventful. He also right. noticed that noted that events of tremendous importance to the royal family and the nation will come about near her seventh year, which was actually closer because um, her father, George the Sixth. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. From the King's speech. I just watched the King's speech. Okay, I'm like ready to go. <laughs> George, her father, George the sixth. Maybe this is why he didn't think she was, maybe this is why, uh, um, William Warner didn't think she was important enough to, for him to do her natal chart. Yeah. Um, her father, George the sixth was not originally in line to be King. Right. Um, his older brother who would have been Edward the eighth or the seventh, I think it was the eighth. Yeah. Um, was supposed That's to right. be king, but he's the one who abdicated, you know, all right to the successions that he could marry Wallace Simpson. Yeah. An American divorcee. It was a fucking big scandal. If you've not seen the King's speech, I highly recommend it. Cause I've seen that movie like three times and I think it's great. It's lovely. I also just like Colin Firth and I like the Beethoven suite that they use for all the really stirring scenes. Yes. Um, it's a good movie. It's on Netflix. So, yeah, so that actually did turn out to be true. Like, her father was not supposed to be king, and then all of a sudden this huge scandal erupts, and her father gets the throne. So then everybody was like, oh, maybe it's right. Yeah, so before uh, astrology, like, horoscope columns became popular, like, there had been a few sort of astrological, like, ditherings published in major press outlets. So, like, the New York Times had once conjectured how Teddy Roosevelt might have been different if he weren't a Sagittarius. I have no idea what that would have been, and nor do I care. Um, but Naylor's chart of Princess Margaret got people interested, and he later sort of maybe predicted the October 5th, uh, 1930 crash of the British airship R101. Um, 48 of the 54 people on board died, and he had predicted that, quote, a British airship will be in danger. He predicted it would happen the following week, but people were, like, close enough. Um, yeah, shit, I'd be like, well, all right. He initially gave advice to, he initially wrote and published advice uh, for people whose birthdays were in the week that the column ran, but he later moved on to just like publishing everything for every star sign. Okay. But horoscope columns are looked down on by real astrologers as something that tabloid writers do after reading one book on astrology. Oh, well then. <laughs> so the other tricky thing about astrology, and I'm glad we're re-recording this now because this just popped up in the news as it does every fucking year. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, the earth is obviously tilted 23.5 degrees. If you're flat earther, stop listening to us right now. Oh God. Um, <laughs> it's you no, know, <laughs> the earth is tilted at 23.5 degrees, which is what gives us our seasons, obviously, as one side of the earth is pointed, you know, at the sun versus pointed yeah. away from the sun. Yep. My mom actually thought that it was summer when the earth is closest to the sun, but actually in the Northern hemisphere, summer happens when earth is furthest away from right. the sun. So fun facts. There you go. Fun facts, fun facts. Uh, (laughs) But in addition to being tilted 23.5 degrees, the earth also wobbles slightly. Um, And it takes about 26,000 years for the earth to complete one of these wobbles. So the sun sign, you know, the, and this is the wobble of the axis. So the axis is a very official term. (laughs) Wobble. It's it's called precession. (laughs) So yeah, the wobble slightly changes where the earth's axis is pointing. All I can think of is that song. That's just like wobble, baby, wobble, baby. I'm pretty sure you did that last time we tried to record this (laughs) for like 26,000 years. Wobble, baby, wobble, baby. (laughs) So every, yeah. So the sun shifts approximately one Zodiac sign every 2000 years, meaning that the constellations have shifted about, one sign um, since the ancient Greeks first described the Zodiac. So 
when I was born, the sun was actually, so I'm a, you know, I was born September 3rd, so a Virgo, but the sun was actually in Leo when I was born. No. Abby was born February 6th, so she's an Aquarius, but the sun was actually in Capricorn. No, I'm not a Capricorn. Sorry. Um, to the at least two Capricorns I know listen to this. <laughs> and there's actually a 13th sign, Ophiuchus. Bless you. Which, <laughs> this is the one that every year people are like, scientists have discovered a 13th zodiac sign. What are we going to do? And it's like, no. No, it's been like that. <laughs> I learned about this in like high school astronomy in 2007. So no, this is not new. <laughs> um, so if you were born between November 30th and December 17th, the sun was actually in Ophiuchus when you were born. And unfortunately, you're not going to find that in any horoscope column and you're going to be lumped in with the Scorpios. Ew. Sorry, kids. Nobody um, wants to be a Scorpio. <laughs> Scorpio and Gemini are the signs that I shit on all the time. And I'm very sorry if you are one of those. There's signs. definitely a Gemini who we're going to do a, a reading for in a hot second here. So sorry. Buckle up. Buttercup. Buckle up, buttercup. You signed up for this. <laughs> but in, uh, if you like comics, you should really read Asterios Polyp. Um, just the art is really good. And the guy does like different art styles for the main character and his estranged wife. Um, and like they're very different sort of clashing art styles and it really accentuates their clashing personalities. But anyway, after they split up, Asterios lives with this random mechanic who, you know, did him a kind deed and his wife who is like a certifiable spooky bitch. And of course, Asterios is a know-it-all. And so he points out to her, you know, the issue of procession and Ophiuchus. Oh, he mansplains yeah. procession to her. He mansplains astrology to her. <laughs> <laughs> and she just goes, don't confuse the constellations with the signs. So I feel like there is sort of this idea, right, that like, you know, regardless of where the sun actually was, like this is sort of like kind of independent from astronomy in a mm -hmm. way in terms of imbuing your life with meaning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So obviously for that and many other reasons, um, astrologers are no more likely than random chance to match someone's personality test to their star chart. You know, if you do like a, a proper double blind test, astrology is not going to, is not going to is not going to win the day. Um, but as American astrologer and horoscope writer, Shelley Von Strunkel, who uh, writes for the Sunday Times, London, e London Evening Standard, um, and a bunch of other publications, she says, experiments are set up by people who don't have any context for this, even if they were attempting to do something constructive. It's like, I'm going to cook this great French meal. I've got this great cookbook in French, but I don't speak French. It's not something you believe in. It's kind of like believing in dinner. The planets are there. The cycles of nature are there. The full moons are there. Nature relates to all of that. It's not something to believe in. So there's more of your sort of listen to the, don't confuse the constellations with the science type stuff. The belief in astrology um, is on the rise, especially among our demographic. And it's attributed to a few different things. Um, the Forer effect, uh, Bertram Forer conducted this, oh, why did I write an asterisk here? I didn't put it immediately next to where it was. Oh yes, that's the part of all millennials. That's what it's asterisk to. So <laughs> Bertram Forer in uh, 1948 conducted this self-validation study where he gave students a personality test um, and then as based, allegedly based on the results on the test, he gave them a description of their personality. And, um, he asked everybody to rate the accuracy of their personality description, um, out of five with five being an, you know, an excellent description of my personality and the average score that people gave it was 4.26, but he actually gave everyone the same personality description, no matter what <laughs> on their test. Yeah. Oh, they're so sneaky, those psychological tests. <laughs> and there's there always were, a catch. They were cobbled together from newspaper horoscopes. Everybody got the same one, but they do kind of what horoscopes do, which is the descriptions were mostly positive, but not implausibly so. And they were general enough to apply to a lot of people. And the article I was reading on the Forer effect um, also said it was 
analogous to the Barnum effect, which I th thought a sucker is born every minute. That's kind of mean. But apparently the Barnum effect that the author meant was there's something for everyone. Readers do the work of shaping their horoscopes to fit them. The Daily Mail's astrologer Jonathan Kainer says, the art of writing a successful horoscope column probably confirms what all too many skeptics and cynics e eagerly clutch to their bosoms as charlatanry, because it's writing ability that makes a horoscope column believable. Ultimately, a successful column will avoid specifics wherever possible. You develop the art of being vague. Yep. A 2009 Harris poll showed that 26% of people believed in astrology, which is more than believe in UFOs, but fewer than believe in witches or ghosts. Really? Yeah. So if you're, if you're following... How many people believe in UFOs? I don't know. I guess... Huh. I feel like UFOs... For another episode. So like UFO literally just stands for unidentified flying object. And I believe that there have been things in the sky that everybody was like, well... You know, I don't know. So in yeah. that sense, sure, Including I believe in the Navy UFOs. and Air Force. Yeah. <laughs> LOL, IDK, my BFF, you know. Little Green Men. <laughs> Little Green Men. Thank you. I was like trying to think of like an alien name and uh, all I could think of was like ET. Snorkel. Snorkel? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so like, yes, I believe that there have been things flying in the sky that nobody who saw it knows what it is. And I also believe that there's intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, but I don't believe aliens have come to Earth. So I don't know. Um... And I don't believe in ghosts. I think they swipe left on us. Aliens. <laughs> they fucked this one. Wow, up. nope. <laughs> no can do, hombre. They really screwed the pooch over here. Yeah. So if you're following along at home, uh, witches and ghosts are in the lead, then astrology, then UFOs. Interesting. Um, but a NASA, uh, NASA, a National Science Foundation survey found that fewer Americans rejected astrology as not scientific in 2012 than they did in 2010. So in 2010, 62% of Americans said astrology is not scientific. Two years later, only 55% say it's not scientific. And that figure hasn't been that low since 1983. Okay, we gotta stop. There's also sort of a, like a why not in terms of why people believe in astrology. Mm -hmm. Julian Beghini, the British philosopher says, human beings are pattern seekers. We have a very, very strong predisposition to notice regularities in nature and the world to the extent that we see more than there are. There are good evolutionary reasons for this. In short, a false positive is less risky than failure to observe a truth. We also tend to think things happen for a reason, and we tend to leap upon whatever reasons are available to us, even if they're not entirely credible. On the one hand, people do want to feel they have some agency or control over the future, but on the other, it's rather frightening to think they have too much. So a rather attractive worldview is that there is some sense of unfolding benign purpose in the universe in which you weren't fundamentally responsible for everything, but were given some kind of control. And astrology gives us a bit of both, a balance. If the best prediction you've got is completely rubbish or baseless, it's better than no prediction at all. If you have no way of controlling the weather, you'll continue to do incantations and dances because the alternative is doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And people hate doing nothing, which I super fucking feel. <laughs> As someone who is always like, you know, like a meteor could be hurtling towards the earth and I'd be like, what should I be doing about this? <laughs> uh, or as Kainer says, astra inclinant non necessitant. The stars suggest, but they don't force. People are more likely to believe positive horoscopes, and but they also, at the same time, take horoscopes more seriously in times of doubt. As Kainer says, if they're going through a time of disruption, they suddenly suddenly start to take what's written about their sign much more seriously. Or if you've been dumped. <laughs> if you're worried and somebody tells you not to worry, you take that to heart. And this is where we come to the rise of belief in horoscopes after the financial crash of 2008. So the Cuts horoscope, and this is a pretty like millennial-geared site, uh, their horoscope page got 50% more traffic in 2017 than in 2016. God, I wonder what it's like now in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking... 
Yikes. Astrology expresses <laughs> complex ideas about personality, life cycles, and relationship patterns through the shorthand of the planets and zodiac symbols. And that shorthand works well online where symbols are in shorthand are often baked into communication, which I think is a really good point. Like, uh, I don't know, people say a lot about like, sort of, I don't know, like the cheapening of communication, like people only send texts and tweets and stuff, but people have been looking for sort of symbolic methods of communication, you know, sort of like imbuing small tokens of communication with meaning for mm -hmm. approximately forever. So I think it makes sense. Um, Bertram Mall, a social cognitive scientist at Brown University, um, says that full-fledged astrology, the kind that goes beyond newspaper-style sun sign horoscopes, quote, provides a powerful vocabulary to capture not only personality and temperament, but also life's challenges and opportunities. To the extent that one simply learns this vocabulary, it may be appealing as a rich way of representing, not explaining or predicting human experiences and life events and identifying some possible paths of coping, right? This is sort of like what we were talking about with tarot, with like, you know, these 22 major arcana can describe an entire life journey for this yeah. everyman figure on his path to enlightenment or these like four like cups, wands and swords and pentacles or whatever are like, it's like the four letter name of God, right? People have been looking for sort of shorthand ways to manipulate and find meaning on things that are like much too big to grasp. Also, there's just the stress of being a millennial, I think that draws people to this, these sort of like why not systems of yeah. belief. We're the first generation that's doing worse than our parents. Um, according to the APA, since 2014, millennials are the most stressed generation and the most likely to say that their stress has increased year over year since 2010. Um, millennials and Gen Xers are significantly more stressed than older generations since 2012. Um, a 2017 survey said that 63% of Americans were significantly stressed about their country's future. Just 63? <laughs> what are the rest of you doing? <laughs> um, Counting money. <laughs> 56. Yeah, fucking uh, complaining about kids on their lawn um, and property taxes. <laughs> yep. 56% uh, of people said that reading the news stresses them out and millennials and Gen Xers were significantly more likely than older generations to say so. Um, but... One article that I read about a woman who got into astrology said that reading her horoscope was like flipping ahead in her own story, which All right. I don't believe in astrology strong in, strongly enough to find that level of reassurance in it, but I kind of get it. Um, yeah. Like I was talking to, and Abby's going to roll her eyes, but I was talking to the guy that runs our retirement accounts at my job and there, there's the eye roll. Did you guys hear it? <laughs> and, uh, he was, you know, he was like, what's your investing style? Like, you know, are you, do you want to invest in risky things? Do you have like a conservative investing style? And it was interesting to me because he's also a millennial and I get that he, you know, does this for a living. Yeah. No offense, finance bros, but I get that he kind of has to drink the Kool-Aid in terms of yeah. like, you know, well, if you just diversify your investments and, you know, change your, yeah, investment strategy over time to match your age, like why everything will just work the fuck out. <sighs> and I'm like, look. I'm not even 30 and I've been through like two, three, like once in a lifetime financial crashes already. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, no, don't fucking put my money in like credit default swaps or whatever the fuck, like talk about magical thinking, like this idea <laughs> that you can just like move money around and sell other people's debt and then, you know, divide it up and wrap it in other people's debt and suddenly it's safe to invest in. Fuck that. Nope. So I'm like, yeah, I have the fucking 
you know, investment style of like one of the bankers from fucking Mary Poppins, who's a million years old, because <laughs> I don't fucking believe in any of this shit. <laughs> At this point, I'm almost inclined to just put it all in a mattress. I hope you said that. I hope you're like, have you seen Mary Poppins? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like one of those old ass bankers being like, yeah, fiduciary something, something bank. Like, <laughs> just put all my money in a vault, Harry Potter style, and I'll come and get it someday. Um, I also like this idea of astrology as sort of an alternative to surveillance capitalism. So this new age writer, Ruby Warrington says, I think that almost as a counterbalance to the fact that we live in such a quantifiable and meticulously organized world, there is a desire to connect to and tap into that numinous part of ourselves. I see astrology as a language of symbols that describes those parts of the human experience that we don't necessarily have equations and numbers and explanations for. The sort of reactionary cultural 180 has happened, has happened before, after the Enlightenment's emphasis on rationality and the scientific method in the 17th and 18th centuries, and we talked about this a little bit earlier in the episode, the Romantic movement found people turning toward intuition, nature, and the supernatural, and, you know, deciding that the Egyptians printed everything on gold leaves, mm-hmm. which I kind of get, because, like, I remember when we were teenagers, um, like, the internet was sort of a, you could rely on it for, for anonymity. Like, there yeah. was the old saying, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. On the internet now, everybody knows you're a dog and what breed you are and what hydrant you sniffed last. You know, like, <laughs> what was it recently when there was, like, the Goya um, the Goya boycott because, like, the head of Goya was, like, a super Trumpophile or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then Ted Cruz was like, you know, my Cuban-American parents, you know, ate Goya beans every day for 90 years. And people immediately looked up how long Ted Cruz's parents uh, or grandparents were alive. Um, when Goya became a company and when Goya started distributing internationally and they, they were like, your grandparents didn't like, didn't even live to be 90. Um, Goya wasn't sending beans to Cuba until like the sixties or something. So there's absolutely no way that they did this. And it's funny because these public (laughs) figures seem to forget that it's not the days of on the internet. Nobody knows you're a dog anymore. Like if you say some like goofy fact to make like a political point, people can just fucking Google you and find out that you're lying. So I kind of like this idea of like, I don't know, introducing some element of, of the numinous of risk of mystery into this world where, you know, my phone can probably tell you like what, you know, tweets I've looked at while I'm pooping or whatever, like just our, just the surveillance capitalism, like where our data and our habits and absolutely everything about us is like quantified and marketed and packaged and sold to other people. Um, Nick, Nicholas Campion, a historian of astrology, points out that the question of whether people believe in astrology is both impossible to answer and not really a useful question to ask. People might say they don't believe in astrology, but they still identify with their zodiac sign. That's totally me. I don't like check my horoscope. I don't really believe that this means anything, but boy, am I a fucking Virgo. And I like to, my friends like to roast me for it. And I also periodically roast myself for it. Um, <laughs> they may like to read their horoscope, but they don't change their behavior based on what it says. So there's more nuance than the question, do you believe in astrology or not, allows for. Or as one millennial chiropractic student put it, it's not like these planets are literally going around and being like, now I'm going to do this. It's a language to speak to the seasons of life. Yeah. Julie Beck, a writer for The Atlantic, says, quote, perhaps the paradox is what's attractive. Digital natives are, okay, and I don't know that I agree with this necessarily, narcissistic, some suggested, and astrology is a navel-gazing obsession. People feel powerless here on Earth, so they're turning to the stars. Some found it to be an escape from logical left-brain thinking. Others crave the order and organization of the complex system brought to the chaos of life. Which I totally get, because, yeah, we absolutely feel powerless here on Earth. We're probably not going to be able to buy, 
like a house or achieve a lot of the milestones that our parents did, certainly not on their own timelines. Um, you know, by the time my parents were my age, they were married and they had a house and two cars. Yep. And I have an apartment. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Hooray! And I have a roof over my head during a pandemic. So that's, you know, I'm grateful for that. But like, yeah, all of these sort of like milestones that our parents laid out for us, like graduate high school, move out, go to college, get bachelor's degree, uh, make enough money to support like a family of three or four and buy a house, even if it's like, you know, a manufacturing job, like those used to be good paying jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and so the systems that we were traditionally taught were like how the world works don't work anymore. So we're like, fuck it, let's just look at the fucking stars. <laughs> it's like that movie, A Knight's Tale, where um, it's based on like Jeffrey Tosser's Knight's Tale. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> if you haven't seen Night's Tale, you should also watch that. It's got Heath Ledger in it. Oh, man. Um, but he is basically this very poor, like, farmer's kid. And they're watching Knights fight um, to, like, David Bowie music. It's a very wild movie. What? It's a very cool... <laughs> I love that movie. It's, like, Never one of my this. guiltiest pleasures. Um, it's so good. Um but basically, like, this little kid has this dream to become a knight one day, but because he doesn't have the bloodline, essentially, like, he'll probably never become a knight. And um, he's, like, talking about to his dad. He's like, can I be a knight one day, father? He talks like this, but then Heath Ledger talks normal, so I don't understand. But whatever. <laughs> um, he's like, can I be a knight one day, father? And, like, some, like rude ass guy in the stand uh in the audience next to them is like in order for you to become a knight one day boy you'll have to change the stars and the little boy looks at his dad and goes can it be done father can a man change the stars <laughs> and like i'm not exaggerating that's how this little kid is talking but anyway <laughs> his dad is like yes william a man can change his stars that's what it reminds me of was like hey like look to the stars. I don't. LOL. I don't know what's gonna happen. Know. But yeah. yeah, it's uh, yeah. And this other part about others crave the order and organization the complex system brought to the chaos of life. Like the flip side of nothing that we were taught working out is like, is well. I mean, the result is kind of chaotic. Like, you know, there are people with. Um, as my friend Marvin was saying, they have a friend with two STEM degrees who was working at Sephora for four years before yeah. she got an industry job. Like it's just complete fucking madness. And so sometimes you're like, well, at least the stars are doing the same thing year in, year out. Yeah. Maybe they know what's going on. Stable. To understand astrology's appeal, Julie Beck says, is to get comfortable with paradoxes, simultaneously cosmic and personal, spiritual and logical, ineffable and concrete, real and unreal. Uh, which reminds me of when I first started undergrad, um, there were these like liberal arts values that we were supposed to learn in school. And I was like, literally, I just want a degree, but okay. And one of them was tolerance of ambiguity. And I was like, as a Virgo, that sounds like it sucks. And that's still something that I struggle with to this day, just like kind of the both and like, I don't know, my life is not what I thought it would be at this age when I was growing up. And I can also still see the beauty in it and be grateful for it. Or I can be grateful that I have a roof over my head and a job during a pandemic. And I can also be slowly losing my mind, not going anywhere or seeing anybody. Um, but yeah, I, I like that about astrology and about tarot that it's like, 
I don't know. You can kind of you can kind of take it or leave it, and I don't mean that in the sense of like, oh, I can take it or leave it, but you can kind of pick which elements that would make the most sense to you, and you can kind of let it let it add some structure to your life, or you can let it add some mystery to your life. So now we're gonna do some readings. All right, before you do that, okay, I want to break this down a little for all of you. Oh boy. Oh boy, this sounds daunting. Strap it. It's, it's not. not. It's really not. It's going to take 30 <laughs> seconds. Um, in the astrological horoscope, there are the signs, but then each sign is also assigned to an element of air, water, fire, earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there are signs that are fixed or unfixed, which basically means um, how stubborn you are. So, I mean, the four most uh, fixed signs of the the is zodiac the right term even to yeah. use. Okay, so the four most fixed signs of the zodiac are Taurus, Scorpio, Aquarius. <laughs> Hello, and oh fuck, I forgot the last one. Girl, it's probably Virgo. It might be. More of those signs of the zodiac. Or Leo fixed signs. Yeah, Leo. So there you go. So if that's you, you are a stubborn hoe, just like me. <laughs> or a stubborn motherfucker. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we're going to do, we have some people who wanted um, readings done. And so we're using Cafe Astrology. And so we're going to talk about your sun sign, which is... Um, oh man, I'm gonna edit this part where I'm looking for my phone out of the episode. Okay. Your sun sign, which actually only decides a little bit about who you are as a person. It's like your outward personality, like the personality you show yeah. so, to strangers and other people mostly. Yeah, so your sun sign is, and here I'm looking at CoStar because I think it explains it really well, but you can only mm-hmm. have like one chart per person. So your sun sign determines your ego, identity, and your role in life. It's mm-hmm. the core of who you are and the sign you're most likely to already know. Mm-hmm. Then your moon sign, or where the moon, what sign the moon was in when you were born, rules your emotions, moods, and feelings. This is the sign you likely think of yourself as since it reflects your personality when you're alone or deeply comfortable. Boo. And then your rising sign is the... Mask thinking of my moon sign, and I'm like, boo, <laughs> boo. Your uh, a rising or ascendant sign is the mask you present to people. It can be seen in your personal style and how you come off to people when you first meet. Some see, some people say it becomes less relevant as you get older, and it also changes every two hours. So you have to know your birth time to know your ascendant sign. Oh. So Abby is Aquarius sun, moon in oh. Scorpio, boo. Mercury rising. Watch out. She is Scorpio moon. (laughs) So uh, your sun sign means you are independent, autonomous, and have progressive ideas. Um, Your weaknesses are an unusual, rebellious, and revolutionary spirit. I think that's not a weakness, but whatever. (laughs) I was going to say that, but I was like, I'm biased, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. (laughs) Now we know where cafe astrology is politically. Um, (laughs) So being Aquarius with Leo rising means you are highly unique. Okay, everybody's highly unique. Um, this is my skeptical bias. <laughs> Scully incoming. Um, Abby is clever, fascinating, interesting, and she chooses to see the best in others in the world around her. Mm. <laughs> and then your moon sign, 
means you are courageous, brave, independent, and not a fearful nature, a very sensual and progressive person. Potential issues, excesses of pleasures, and difficulty letting go. Ooh, girl. <laughs> she just threw the eyebrows at me. <laughs> so then I am Virgo, a Virgo, with my moon in Cancer and... Um, like a Virgo, Virgo, guys. Scorpio like a, rising. Like a major Virgo. Wait, did I say... What is your what is your rising sign? I think I got it wrong because this one also tells you where Mercury and everything is. You said like Mercury ascending. What? Okay, that's so what you said. <laughs> I was <you're>, like, um, <laughs> what? Okay, sorry. Sun in Aquarius. No. Bless you. Moon in Scorpio. Leo rising. Yeah, there we go. Okay, that makes more sense. Well, you read Leo rising's description, but you said Mercury rising instead. Okay, Mercury is not a sign of the zodiac. <laughs> It's hot and humid. Just shh. my brains are melting. Shh. shh. Okay. So <laughs> I'm a Virgo with my moon in Cancer and Scorpio rising, which means oops, I have lots of vitality. Hmm. Depends on the day. I like public. What? Is this really me? All right. <laughs> I like public life. I am popular and my company is appreciated. This is very flattering. I am balanced. <laughs> Um, at ease with myself, um, and I usually get on very well with my parents. Um. <laughs> no comment. No comment. Plead the fit. <laughs> um, and then my moon sign means I am likable and sociable, very sensitive to environmental conditions and surroundings. I like home habits, comfort in my little world, very caring and protective of loved ones. That's true. Potential issues subject to indolence and inertia. I am impressionable and too sensitive family problems so okay so you get along well with your parents but the rest of your family <laughs> is not <laughs> and not she's an only child totally so right. i lol i don't yeah, know my extended family you know well okay so <laughs> now we're going to do um our patreon patrons i'm going to do the virgos first because we're awesome and also most of our patrons are virgos wow. i think so it should be noted that our group of friends is literally all virgos and then two aquarius two aquarius <laughs> yeah. it's like oh okay so Jackie is a Virgo with her moon in Gemini and Sagittarius rising. So sharp intellect. She likes literature. Yes. Yeah, she's she, an English professor. <laughs> will adapt to all situations and social groups. Works in contact with the public, literary occupations, and travel. Potential issues, lack of follow-up of ideas, indecision, may go back on decisions. No comment. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> moon, or wait, that's her... These short You're short really good at this. I'm sorry. I thought I would do better than the last time we recorded this, but I'm not. <laughs> Sensual and passionate. Passions run hot and cold. Full of ardor and desire where the partner needs to be able to match her level. Can be jealous and possessive. If disappointed or deceived in love, she can become bitter. Usually very loyal. Hmm. Okay. Chelsea, also a Virgo. Moon and Gemini. Scorpio rising. Sharp intellect, likes literature, and will adapt to all situations and social groups, work in contact with the public literary occupations, and travel again. Lack of follow of ideas and decision may go back on decisions. So, just like Jackie, apparently. Um, Brad, a Virgo with his moon in Aries and Leo rising. Um, sensual and passionate, passions run hot and cold, full of ardor and desire where the partner needs to be able to match his level. Sunny is a Cancer with a moon in Virgo and Leo rising. Uh, they weigh words carefully and can be tenacious. A calm and discreet nature, tender, thoughtful, sensitive, and impressionable. Potential issues. They are humble, timid, changeable, indecisive, lazy, or oversensitive. Wow. Wow, that was, like, really harsh compared to the other. <laughs> Somebody who... Sorry, Sonny. Whoever designed this website just fucking hates me. Apparently, fuck. Um, 
I feel like those are really harsh, like, downsides to a sign compared to the rest of this website. Easily influenced by the family and sometimes manipulative. Your Leo rising means you project a strong image, which hides a sensitive and emotional character. Very noticeable and intriguing demeanor. Hmm. Is that true, Sunny? Hit us up. Let us know. Let us know. Um, you also have the lots of vitality, like public life, popular in their company is appreciated in your description. Um, you have a very good memory, scientific or medical studies preferred above all others. We're humble and moderate, calm and reserved, emotional discipline, willing to help, devoted and gentle. Potential issues. Oh, here we go again with the potential issues. I'm very sorry, Sunny. Servile nature, <laughs> frequent changes of occupation, quick to become annoyed, upset, worried. Probably because everybody's talking shit about you on this website. Yeah, seriously. Fuck. <laughs> Sincere, frank, and warm affections, full of tenderness, high hopes and love. This person can't decide how they feel about you, Sonny. Must have been written by Gemini. <laughs> sorry, Sonny. My ex and my ex-boss were both Geminis, so we're going to rag on them. I'm very sorry. I'm pretty sure we have a Gemini coming up in here. Please don't. Please keep listening to us. Um, <laughs> Jessica is a Capricorn with Moon and Aquarius and Gemini rising. Um, honest, reserved, circumspect, honorable, and strong-willed. Mm. Quietly ambitious within the realms of the possible, she likes and takes on responsibility. She can work in the social domain. Potent possible issues a sometimes bitter and mistrustful mind. Honestly, who doesn't right now? Right. Lots of vitality, likes public life. Sociable, intelligent, and lucid. Thanks to great sociability, she has many friends. She is modern, original, inventive, nonconformist, and is likely to bring new life to everything she does. She's also from Germany and sunny. They're from uh, Sydney, Australia, and I don't know. It just makes me very happy that we're not just doing, like, all our <laughs> friends just, from yeah. Illinois. I'll enter yeah. all our friends from Illinois yeah. Wisconsin. Um, <laughs> no offense, friends from Illinois Wisconsin. Yeah, you're lovely. I just like having a little, you know. Variety. Now we're doing Brad's boyfriend, Jeff. He is, wait, did I even say what science he is? He is also, he's the other um, Aquarius. Aquarius in our group. His birthday is three days after mine. With a moon in Leo and Leo rising. He is independent, oops, yeah, he is independent, autonomous, and has progressive ideas, weaknesses, an unusual rebellious and revolutionary spirit. Again, not a weakness, in yeah. my humble onion. Aquarius with Leo rising, highly unique, okay. Um, clever, fascinating, interesting, chooses to see the best in others in the world around him. This is like how I always, yeah. We like, both have Leo rising. Yeah. Jeff is like the boy version of you in a lot of ways. Wow. <laughs> like you guys get, you each get, you each get like, you know, an angel and a devil on your shoulder. And I just get like two devils on my shoulder. <laughs> I'm like, let's do the responsible, let's react to this person in a responsible professional way. And Jeff is like pooping her coffee. <laughs> <laughs> He's like the bad Kermit. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Jeff is dark Kermit. Dark Kermit. He is, oh, here we go. He is brave, knowing how to take risks and possessing the courage of his convictions, honest, imposing, and sharp. Hence, he is a bad Kermit. <laughs> it's dark, dark Kermit. Kermit. He has a great sense of and respect for justice. Organizational sense. Selectivity with friends, but is not overly influenced by them. Hmm. Taste for splendor. Mm. Potential issues. Changing and numerous affections. Emotionally demanding and proud. Brooding when attention is not forthcoming. <laughs> I can picture Jeff's face. Oh my God. You say I... brooding when attention is not forthcoming. Like, I, my partner <laughs> recently told me that I pout when he's not giving me enough attention. <laughs> oh. And I felt so Saint and angry, but mostly saint. <laughs> um, and last but not least, how much time do we have left on the recording? No. So many tabs. Five minutes. Okay. We have Lady Teal, who is very sorry, the Gemini with the Mary Lady Teal. We love you. Thank and you. And Gemini Rising. Yes. All the way from Georgia. Yeah. Um, she is like, oops, that's the wrong description. 
You are, she is an opportunist. She can express herself easily and tends to learn quickly. Ooh. She is welcoming and gentle. She likes travel and intellectual work. Oh, I would say that. Weaknesses, a changeable and diffuse nature. May waste energy by taking on too many things. She lacks persistence in achieving set goals. Ouch. Gemini with Gemini rising means very quick-witted, somewhat nervous, and restless personality. Strongly identifies with friends and has a twinkle in her eye. Sounds like a fun lady. And then your moon in Cancer means... You are likable and sociable, very sensitive to environmental conditions and surroundings, likes home habits, comfort, and her little world, like me. Ta-da! And those are the readings of all of y'all. Thank you, everyone, for volunteering your star sign information to us. To us. <laughs> we for me to badly read your star chart. We hope you uh, <laughs> learned something about yourself. I don't know. Or about my skills. Or about us. In reading star charts. <laughs> Do you think it's true? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Let us know. You can let us know several different ways. One of them is via the G- the Gmail. The Gmail. Abby is salty that nobody Gmail. has emailed us. I am very salty that no I took I worked so hard over that account for hours. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. For like three whole minutes of my life, and no one has emailed. It's podcastqueershafears at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Instagram or Facebook or Patreon. Queershafears podcast. Or you can tweet Ellie um, if you're more into talking to Virgos. <laughs> or less judgy than me, apparently. At queersfearspod. Yep. And she's a maniac on that account. As she, she said that, not me. I'm just quoting her. <laughs> For the record. It's mostly I start a fight between us. X-Files, memes, and cryptids. Hell yeah. So. It's pretty great. There's yeah. a couple of um, cat pictures, too. Yes. Yes. So. Filed under cryptids. That's everything. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And uh, thank you for listening. If you'd like to support us monetarily, you can do this that on Patreon. If you would like to support us in a non-monetary way, you can do that by writing a review of us on Facebook or uh, Apple, iTunes, iTunes. Spotify. I don't think you can write a review on Spotify, which is annoying because that's fucking annoying that's most of where (laughs) our listens come from but anyway um or you can just recommend uh us to friends so patreons we know we are behind on our rewards we're working on it we love you hi (laughs) i deleted some stuff it's fine it's all my fault i was like i think i deleted this episode and also this other one side i was like well (laughs) time for a fucking recording recording all day during this hot day so it's just gonna slowly get like we're just going to descend into madness. We're just one step at a time, sweet Jesus. <laughs> Thank you for your patience. Okay, bye. Bye. bye.